वेलकम टू सन टॉक द सन टॉक इज अराउंड द टेबल टुडे डिस्कस द बिगिनिंग्स ऑफ एथिक्स वी विल थिंक अबाउट एथिक्स एंड हाउ सोसाइटीज इंडिविजुअल्स डिसिप्लिन एंड कल्चर्स फर्स्ट टर्न एथिकल can one be or become ethical by following laws and rules blindly are ethical systems always evolving how does moral development take place and does it follow a pattern might an ethical position be deeply non-intuitive how does the nature of information change as a moral values and intuitions change is there a link between risk perception and ethics and might and must all arguments be made partly or fully ethical in the very long run we are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today professor janak pande he is a social psychologist he has been associated with university of allahabad in the past Professor Jules Simon He is a professor of philosophy specialized in the areas of ethics phenomenology and specifically phenomenological ethics He also works in political philosophy and philosophy of religion He is from University of Texas at El Paso and Professor Srinivasan Subramanian He is a Chennai based former professor of economics He has worked on social choice theory and social and economic measurement. So, Jules, why don't we set the ball rolling with you um, to try and understand how we know whether something is right or wrong? How do we first know whether something is right or wrong? How 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 does that happen? How does how does that happen to us as individuals, to us as cultures, as societies? how did it first happen to us as as mankind as human beings is there a way to answer that question uh well there are, there are, there are many ways to answer questions about right and wrong and that has to do with uh individual and individual development within families and communities mm-hmm. so we we teach each other and we raise each other with a with kinds of ethical awareness and so my position is that that will change based upon um the kinds of values different social groups um commit themselves to mm-hmm. but this uh, this that, assumes that something exists in the first place and it's merely a process of acculturation and socialization of new members or so that how does it come to be in the first place right well um coming to be in the first well it depends upon what you're talking about yeah. so without getting caught up in that generality yeah um specifically in terms of ethical relations mm-hmm. um those happen based on the nature of human relations as such so as human beings we're uh we constitute ourselves as social beings 
What's happened in the course of our development as human beings is we've developed ways to think about ourselves in terms of individuals related to a group. Yeah. And so to the extent that, based on the extent to which we've emphasized or collective membership over against uh, individual achievements or individual, um, a sense of individuality, uh, will determine the kinds of ethics that we develop. Right. So, right. right. So even this uh, individual collective dynamic and the nature of it itself leads to certain kinds of... Uh, hmm. And how does, how does something end up attaining the force of a law? How does, it, how does it go all the way? How does it move forward from being something relatively more benign and at the level of a suggestion to something which attains the force of almost a moral law or I mean, going all the way to the more stricter and uh, stronger forms of it. And we understand that stuff like this doesn't have a two-minute answer. One gets that. How, 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 how fast do we, how much do we want to get into the dance, right? So yeah. um, there's different ways to think about law. Uh, we think about law scientifically, or we think about laws in terms of law as such, uh, the kinds of laws that we refer to that we develop to regulate human behavior. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in that sense, we have two general terms. One is called natural law, and the other one is called positive law. Mm-hmm. And generally speaking, when we talk talk about natural law, it's that way of re- it's a phrase that we use to refer to those laws that are uh, fundamental to all living and non living beings, like the laws of nature. Sure. Right. Something like that. Positive so laws of gravitation. Law of gravity or something like that. Like that. So the, a law of nature. Right. So we've even developed in our human evolution ways to think about ethics. And I'm thinking here Kant in particular. Right. Who will want us to adopt a moral law like a law of nature. Right. To have that kind of strength. Right. The categorical imperative and exactly. things of that nature around there. Mm. But then that's complicated with the notion of positive law, and positive law refers to those laws that we humans have adopted, which don't necessarily accord with what we think is the law of nature. Mm-hmm. So that's a way of specifically talking about laws that humans have developed to regulate and govern human societies, and we call those that positive law. Mm-hmm. And you can think a good example of this is the nature of a police state. Yeah, and the way we develop uh, policing or or uh, militarized uh, laws in, in order to control and manage populations. So that's just one way to think about positive law. We also have positive laws in economics as well, and some of those will um, are based upon what I think will come up later on in our conversation in terms of rational choice theory. Uh, and certain kinds of economic theories that we've developed. Mm. Mm. No, that's interesting. I think we'll get back to some of the questions that we're opening there. Subhu, so when you think of man, when you think of human beings, uh, obviously the the cliche is that you think of him as a rational person, as an economic agent. Do you also presuppose and visualize or think of a person as an ethical person? And what does it mean in the context of economics? Where do you come to this question? And how do you come to this question? Right. Um, 
On the origins of ethics, I think it's a bit of a risky question to address. Um, Why do you say that? The Bishop Usher of Ireland actually precisely dated the creation of the universe and he put it down to 6 p.m. <laughs> October 22nd, 4004 BC. Right. Now, I think trying to identify when the ethical moment actually happened might be as risky sure, and the sure. outcome Absolutely. could be as ludicrous as uh, as uh, as uh, Usher's efforts in the direction of dating um, the birth of the universe. And also in addressing questions such as these, it would help to be an evolutionary biologist or an antiquarian or a philologist or an historian of ideas. I'm none of these. I'm an economist. So, so presumably all that I'm qualified to talk about is the stock market and its vicissitudes, and we usually get that wrong as well. So, but anyway, <laughs> let me try. The question to you is in the context of economics. Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, fine. But it, I think I might go a bit beyond that. Uh, sure. Despite being circumscribed by uh, by my discipline, uh, I mean it's conceivable that uh, that um, Kant's categorical model imperative was not the first ethical movement. That uh, certainly the Ten Commandments predated these by many centuries, and uh, we owe right. that to the Prophet Moses, right, and to the Prophet Cecil B. DeMille. Uh, but with respect to your question in a, in a less facetious uh, tone, I think there are at least two ways in which one can uh, think about the origins of ethics. Mm -hmm. From one perspective, uh, which is the one that is normally credited to philosophers like Herbert Spencer and right. others who uh, uh, adopt a persuasion uh, that uh, endorses evolution. According to this perspective, uh, Good and bad came to be identified uh, respectively with that which was useful for or antithetical to the interests of the community in which they lived. Right. So the evolutionary view of ethics is one which suggests that, that uh, our notions of right and wrong and of good and bad are shaped by that which is useful or the contrary to the community in which we live. The notions of value in some sense. That's right. And this communitarian notion is particularly persuasive because it's difficult to conceive of ethics in the context of a Robinson Crusoe society. Right, so it's almost and always... Literally a Robinson right. Crusoe society, which doesn't even include his Man Friday. Right. Because usually ethical precepts are, are couched in terms of the obligations which we owe to each other. To, to the other. That's so right. If it's so only the, one. the notion of the other becomes very important. So it's usually in a community uh, that uh, questions of ethics emerge. So it has to do something with interactions. It has to do something with... Uh, Absolutely. Obviously, notions of fairness coming out of there. Absolutely. Notions of the long term. Exactly. Notions and, of and therefore, also the prioritization of... Uh, uh, other regarding this over uh, purely egotistic behavior in, in much of conventional morality. Mm -hmm. uh, but as distinct from this point of view is Nietzsche on the genealogy of morals, mm -hmm. who believes that uh, initially the notion of good was associated with that which was noble or exalted or right. powerful. Huh? Right. While the bad was associated with notions of lowliness of uh, uh, abasement in some sense, you know. Right. And uh, uh, and Nietzsche also sort of support many of his inferences 
by tracing the etymological roots of the words good and bad in, in, the, in the classical languages. Uh, it's interesting that uh, in his view, I mean, these notions of good and bad were eventually completely turned on their head. Mm-hmm. Uh, and good began to be associated with impotence, with uh, right. poverty, with uh, meekness. Right. While bad came to be associated with, uh, again, with, with power and with supremacy. So they're not uh, permanent categories. They that, not of, only are they not per- permanent categories, but Nietzsche makes the interesting point that in the end, uh, I mean, the essence of this he found in Christianity, mm-hmm. which he uh, 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 saw as a revaluation of all values. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one which in fact stood the traditional notion of morality of the ancient days on its, uh, on its head. So not only are ethical values potentially always changing, but they might also flip and become... Oh, yes. The opposite. Oh yes. In in some instances, in the long run, and so on and so forth. That's right. But but in both both these views of ethics, I mean, as uh, uh, Joel suggested, there is a there is an understanding that the individual good is subordinated to the to the social or collective good. That uh, notions of ethics generally team. So the social is still primary. That's right. That's right. E- economics has an interesting, uh, different view of this, but we'll come to that perhaps later when uh, uh, when we're discussing that more directly. How, how do you come to this, Jules, on the on the on the Nietzsche question of does does well the ethical values and categories can they even flip into each other? Can they can can this happen? And why does it happen? Is there a way to understand that? So. Uh... I really like Nietzsche's philosophy. <laughs> I like the whole whole. I, I think that Nietzsche gives us one of um, the first first philosophies of ethical integrity. What do you mean by so, that? Ethical integrity. So um, prior to, prior to Nietzsche, we've had we had many many systems uh, of dualist right. metaphysics, dualist. Right, dividing people up into good and evil, and a transcendent realm and an earthly realm, and we have many, many examples of that. Right, right. throughout many systems of peoples in the world, and Nietzsche wants to collapse that and say, "There's just me, the individual philosopher, and I can only embrace those values and acts in such a way." that if I were to live my life over again, I would do them all over again. That's called the, the eternal recurrence of the same, his philosophy of the eternal recurrence of the same. So I should act in such a way that the impetus of that eternal recurrence of the same thinking is, I should act in such a way that I would live my life with no regrets, mm-hmm. right? that I would embrace everything I did with joy. But this is this is said right. in the context of the individual, That's because right. it, there's a way in which even the categorical imperative can be phrased like that. Because even that would be, if such and such thing were a law and everybody did the same thing, then it should be sustainable or something to that effect. Yeah. Well, to get back to Subhu's point about the genealogy of morals and mm. the transvaluation of mm. ethical values and how they come about. So uh, Nietzsche was also not a, only a philologist but a historian. Mm-hmm. Right, so he had this nice work he produced on the use and abuse of history, and um, part of his 
his uh, philosophy was to show that what drives our ethicality, as it were, is this thing called resentment, resentiment, right? So that kind of drives us to act in the way that we do because we don't have power. And so we resent those people who do have power. So we act in such a way. We act in such a way. Or the That's slave beautiful. morality. Called the slave morality, exactly. That's beautiful. So we, we adopt this slave morality and um, we, uh, it's been foisted on us that um, this is a good thing to do in order to be able to eventually have some kind of satisfaction in life or joy in life because life is miserable. Right, <laughs> at least so that Nietzsche, kind of thing. Yeah. But I, I want to shift the conversation a little bit here. Uh, eventually, perhaps, um, because there was another philosopher who I, who I, whose philosophy I liked, and his name was Max Scheler, this German, also a German philosopher, and he was inspired by Nietzsche's philosophy of resentment, and said, "No, resentment doesn't come from Christians." adopting a slave morality and flipping the values to say to be, you know, subservient or uh, to serve others is a weakness. Actually, and he says, he said, he argues this in his book called Resentiment. Um, he says, the real Resentiment philosophy is the consumer culture uh, philosophy, where those people who buy into the profit-making consumer culture are the ones who are transvaluing values. So this is Schiller. This is Schiller, right? right. Max Schiller, right? So he flips that. He flips Nietzsche's resentment. So this logic. is this is nineteen twenties, thirties. This is uh, uh, the turn of the century, late eighteen hundreds, right? You know, into the early early nineteen hundreds. That's quite prescient then, because I mean. I mean, obviously, that kind of capitalism is not even taken root. I didn't know this earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Max Scheler. I, 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 the reason why it, it comes to mind is because I, I just finished my chapter on Max Scheler for my phenomenological ethics book. <laughs> so <laughs> I just like it's right there, and there's Nietzsche, you know. So that you brought Nietzsche up, that was just no, well, that's beautiful. Nice lead into that. That's beautiful. But Subhu, one of the points you made, which you said you'd go to later, and maybe we'll do that quickly before we go to Janak, is, is that the Context of economics is different. Uh, so how is that different? In on, on this individual collective question, and so if if in the context that we've been speaking of, it's the social that has primacy. Is, is it the other way around in some shape or form in economics, or well, what is it? What's the new? It's interesting uh, uh, to note that uh, one of the most uh, influential of model philosophers in recent times, who recently died, Derek Parfit. Yeah. Um, Earlier this year, his first yeah. book was called "Reasons and Persons." Mm. So it dealt with the notions of rationality and and identity. Mm -hmm. And one of the things which he took on was the notion of rationality, which has been peddled by economics. Right. That ultimately, to be a rational human being is to be self-centered. Yeah. To seek to maximize self-interest. And to be a permanent. Individuated entity, which which yes, should, which this, so this is also with. part of the the uh, methodological apparatus of economics. What's called methodological individualism right. is at the heart of much of economics. Right. So, um, Parfit himself countered this point of view by considering also notions of identity. Mm -hmm. 
uh, wherein he said, when we think of our future selves, while these are obviously connected to each other by such things as memory, right? Uh, the same person, the same quote-unquote person at different points in time should actually be construed as different persons. Right. And if we nevertheless act in such a way as to make present sacrifices for future selves, mm-hmm. then that's not really irrational because we do it all the time. And if that's not irrational... In a way, you're doing it for your future other. For the future other. Yeah. Then it's not irrational to do it for the contemporaneous other. Yes. So this was a somewhat convoluted way in which uh, uh, he, he derived the notions of other regarding us mm. from... Uh, a view of rationality which uh, deviated from the economistic conception of uh, uh, rationality as being actuated by self-interest and as being manifested purely in certain conditions of consistency of choice. Right, right. Which which constitutes very much the the cornerstone of all of welfare economics and social choice theory to which we might wish to return at a later stage, you know. And, you know, just so that we have definitional agreement here, Subhu, what, mm. what is ethicality um, in the context in which you, you, you speak of things? In economics. Yeah, so what would it mean to be ethical? What? Well, I, economics has been traditionally concerned with assessing the goodness of any given state of affairs. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you need to uh, operationalize so this notion of goodness. So you do that by having a broader definition of utility and so on and so exactly. forth? Exactly. Right. So it's, it's, it's ultimately defined in terms of efficiency. Efficiency is the principal ethic mm. which, which guides all of welfare economics. Mm. And efficiency in the sense in which it is employed in economics means arriving at a state of the world, mm-hmm. uh, usually in terms of an allocation of resources, mm-hmm. such that nobody can be made better off without making somebody else worse off. Right. Now, so these notions of being better off, worse off, and so on and so forth have to be given more or less precise definition. Sure. So that leads you to a consideration of the notion of utility and what it means to maximize utility, which is a subject of endless uh, quest in economics and was once short-circuited by (laughs) an eccentric professor of economics called Frank Hahn at the University of Cambridge when he was pushed a bit far by his students. Mm -hmm. What is utility? He eventually said, it's a damned thing you maximize. And obviously there are many paradoxes there. It's, it's not at all straightforward. Yes, mm-hmm. it's not at all straightforward. There are a whole lot of difficulties associated with uh, the development of welfare economics, mm. which I can discuss either now, although sure. it seems to me that that's becoming a little specialized. And no, we'll get, we'll, we'll get back to that. I we'll think that's a beautiful question. So Janak, why don't we jump to you? We go to the somewhat social context and maybe dip into ideas from social psychology and maybe invoke the word morality, which has been used a couple of times. Um, So again, the same question to you, how does moral development take place? Does it follow a pattern? Does it follow a pattern in a small group, in individuals, in societies? What what's robust there? Is there a trend? Is there a pattern? Is there something we can understand with, with some degree of certainty? Uh, well, there is a concept like uh, moral reasoning. Moral reasoning. Mm-hmm. And moral reasoning develops in stages. It has to pass through different stages. And uh, of course, 
in a socio-cultural context. Mm-hmm. Uh, one major theorist in this area has been Kohlberg, mm-hmm. who talked about stages of moral development. And this is for the individual? Uh, well, it is for the individual, mm-hmm. but individual... In a society. In the society. Sure. Individual is not uh, separated from the society. Sure. Not Robinson Crusoe. Yes. Mm. So in the social, cultural context, the individual child uh, passes through these stages. Mm -hmm. Actually, Kohlberg got the inspiration to think moral development in terms of stages. Mm Mm-hmm from Jean Piaget, right. a great uh, Swiss uh, psychologist who in 30s, 1930s, right. came up with uh, the theory of cognitive development. Right. That cognitive, Pedagogy, child psychology. Yes, that, cognitive yeah. development uh, is a process which passes from lower stage to higher stage. Sure. And so, you know, Janak, since we're discussing the beginnings of ethics, um, and we'll elaborate this a little bit further, what's the first stage? The beginning of ethics is, as uh, mentioned uh, earlier in our discussion, that uh, man is a social uh, being, social animal. Mm-hmm. And uh, the individual child uh, has to survive in the social context. Mm-hmm. Basic needs are to be fulfilled in the social context. Mm-hmm. And so the child gradually learns the rules of the society. Mm-hmm. Society develops its own systems, which uh, could be described by uh, in terms of norm, in terms of values, in terms of standards. Sure. And... Uh, those are to be gradually followed by the child and the child acquires them through the process of socialization. Sure. Socialization. So the first stage is just one of absorption? Well, of, first stage How, how, how is, is it codified? What are first the, stage would be in terms of uh, Holberg's analysis is pre-conventional stage. That it is just based on kind of uh, reward and punishment. Mm-hmm. That if a child uh, does a particular uh, response, behave in a particular way, mm-hmm. if it is acceptable to the society and for that context, then he, uh, or she then is he gets the reward. If he gets the punishment. Mm. So that's the beginning. So then the child uh, learns the reasoning that you learn the incentives or disincentives first. Exactly, exactly. So that's Mm. the way you begin. Mm. And then you move on a little further ahead. Uh, You get into self-interest, that how I can best serve my Mm self-interest. You know, kind of, uh, I play ball, but I cannot play ball alone. Mm. So I have to throw the ball Mm. And then the other child will throw a ball back to me. Mm. So that uh, reciprocity 
uh, gets uh, uh, in the child mind and there uh, it is the self-interest. Mm. Then the second stage uh, comes up, major stage, that is the conventional morality. Mm-hmm. And that conventional morality is uh, uh, good and bad. The concept of good and bad uh, gets into the head of the child. Okay, and uh, that this is good, this is bad, this is to be done, this is not to be uh, So in done. a way, this is the first stage where morality is coming in because so f- before that, it's all calculative and interactional and transactional. You, you, you know the rewards and punishments, so you kind of suspect that this is good or yeah, bad. But, but, yeah, it, it hmm. is also reasoning. Right. It is reasoning. So right. reasoning is at mental level. Right. It is no longer remains mechanical. Right. It is the evolution of the moral reasoning. Right, right. And then you move to conventional stage where you also start recognizing uh, authority. You also start seeing the importance of the rules. Mm. Uh, parents make rules for the house. Society mm. makes rules or different kind of, uh, you know, context. And a rule is a slightly different thing because it need not necessarily be ethical or moral. A rule can be a rule, right? A rule could be a rule, but if it is a rule for larger good, Mm -hmm. then it has a moral base. Mm -hmm. You know, if it is a rule of someone for, uh, you know, selfish end of that person, that's it different kind of things. So when we are talking about uh, general rules... And Janak, is there a way of extending this, this these rough stages uh, to the context of a society as well? Yes. I mean, is it? Is it possible yes. to do that? Yes. Yes. The larger society, larger authority system, social order. Uh, so that's a conventional reasoning mm. that you uh, learn the truth at this stage, uh, you know, you have a process that you are learning the way society is governed. Social norms, social rules, social authority. And that's interesting. Yes. So that's, that's the second stage. That's then the third stage is post-conventional stage, mm-hmm. according to Holberg. Mm-hmm. And in that stage, you think about the general principle. Mm-hmm the general principle of human rights, mm-hmm. general principle of uh, equality, mm-hmm. general principle of uh, satyame vajayate. So this is slightly more transcendental. This yes. Right. Yes. So these are the three broad level. Kohlberg talks about in That's each fine. level That's two fine. stages. That's fine. Uh, but the uh, there is another interesting thing. Mm-hmm. Claims, before, before we go to that, before we go to that, Janak, does this resonate with you in any way, Sabu? Uh, does it does it have any resonance in the economic system? Does it resonate with you in any way, Jules? And the the staging from the pre-conventional to the post-conventional, the way Kohlberg talks about it, the way Janak has articulated it. Well, this emergence there's all of, kinds of resonance. And I'm familiar with uh, Kohlberg's stages. I, I don't know if this uh, will make any headway in our conversation, but I was thinking about ashrams and uh, about. Ashram, because mm-hmm. ashram means stage, right? Yes. It's a stage we go through. 
uh, in one's life. So there's an entirely different kind of teaching, I think, that goes on in the ash- ashram tradition mm-hmm. uh, than the Kohlberg psychological tradition of staging. Um, so I don't know if we want to talk about that or not. Sure, um, sure, sure. But I, I just wanted to maybe intervene and uh, to come back to your to Subu's comment about uh, what, how did you phrase it? The other other obligations or other the regardingness. Other regarding okay, it's a nice con- phrase. The contemporary right. other. If you can care for yourselves as another at a future point in time, you could also care for the other at the contemporary point in time who could be another being. Um, right. Derek Parfit would disagree with that in some form or fashion. But Yeah, so I want to um, come back to that mm. uh, and maybe as a response to Kohlberg's um, staging system, mm-hmm. the way he sets that out as a theory, right? So other regarding this. And the beginning of ethics is uh, happens... Um, and we can trace this back then to childhood or to our sure. conversation sure. Uh, in, in how we develop uh, an understanding of our relationship to each other. Yeah. And one that takes into account individual spontaneity yeah. and also in our relationship to each other. So as an individual, I have an autonomous spontaneity. Characterizes myself, right? I'm a spontaneous being. What characterizes our independence, our autonomy, is is the extent to which we express our spontaneity, right? The counterpoint to that is how I meet the other and how the other resists my spontaneity. Yeah. Or how I take into account the spontaneity of the other. Yeah. So these two notions, um, as opposed to rooting the beginning of ethics in reward and punishment, right? That way of thinking, pleasure, pain, the pleasure, pain axis. This is where I want to contest the utility thesis. (laughs) Um, If we think in terms of spontaneity and resistance, we get a different way of thinking about ethical relations and the beginnings of ethics. So... How then do I limit my spontaneity? How do I take into account the resistance of the other? Or the spontaneity of the other. Or the spontaneity of the other. But is it is it possible to become or be ethical by following rules? Well, rule, rule making... Rules, conventions, norms. Yeah, but then rule, make, rule making then is already a level where I'm instituting something. So sure. rule, rules then have to do with the way we institute agreements with each other, right? Sure. So I have to come to this agreement with you. So rule making and rule instituting uh, is already a level that presupposes where are you a on this fundamental Janak? level. Where are you on this, Janak? Is it possible to become or be ethical by following rules and maybe one can extend that further and have a harsher form of that and say this blindly following rules. Yeah, actually these three stages of moral reasoning mm-hmm. should not be taken that one stage is raised, that is over, then the second stage begins and then the third stage comes up. Sure, sure. These three stages should be taken Maybe as, they're nested uh, within each other. Exactly. Sure. I think even somebody is uh, having for some action, 
the post conventional reasoning right and for some Another action, action is pre conventional reasoning uh, but these are the stages of the reasoning yeah. to consider the higher level of ethical conduct mm-hmm. one has to also think about the evolution of the mind mm-hmm. you know the ashram idea is good Mm. But ban prasth ashram, mm. when you renunciate everything, mm. you know, and that stage uh, do come after certain level of reasoning one has acquired. Sure. So it uh, the the idea is that these reasoning stages, uh, people go through. That's the part of the human nature. Uh, claim of Kohlberg that this is universal reasoning. Hmm. Uh, I you could take that up with a pinch yeah, of salt. Yeah, yeah so we may not agree to that. And I think uh, Jules will agree with yeah, you on this one. <laughs> <laughs> development of reasoning <laughs> is <laughs> always culture relative. So, so you know, there is a relativism with the cultural context. Where is where is faith in all this? You know, we're using reasoning and stages of that, and obviously it could be in different. But is does this just plain faith play a role in all of this? Do they interplay with each other? I, I could have something to say about that, but if you want to chime in here, Subhu. Well, yes, conventionally, clearly, yes, morality has been strongly associated with religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's also interesting to notice that there are views of morality, such as those espoused by Camus, for example, the existentialists, right. who talk about uh, the compulsions of a moral code which are divorced from any notion of magic or miracles okay. so uh, so the 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 notion of an absurd existence for example is right. one which seeks no comfort right from the existence of a god or of a, or of a divine benefactor who is ordaining right. the, the world in which we live and yet that is compatible with it's not only compatible with but it dictates that we act in accord with certain moral principles, not the least of which is uh, to behave decently, as, mm. uh, as, <laughs> as Camus put it. So, um, again, I mean, there are philosophers like Bernard Williams who talk about the importance of what is called personal integrity, mm. which again is divorced from notions of religion, but which calls for a certain consistency uh, and connectedness in the way in which we conduct our affairs. And therefore, conforms with what uh, uh, Jana called called uh, uh, model reasoning. Right, right. So, yes, I mean, uh, uh, can some ethical notions be very, very non-intuitive, or or uh, is, is it just a process of uh, really putting codes around common sense at any moment in time? And obviously, it's constantly feeding itself and it's can, constantly changing. What was your question again? Can can ethical precepts be completely non-intuitive? Yes. Well, I'd put it this way. I mean, there are, uh, within the field in which I have some some knowledge, such as in uh, the measurement of poverty and inequality, Yes. a common way to proceed is to put down a set of axioms, self-evidently acceptable ethical propositions about, say, poverty or inequality, mm-hmm. and then to seek to characterize measures which would satisfy these axioms. Mm-hmm. Now, the deeper one gets into it, the more one recognizes that what one initially thought of were as being absolutely self-evidently appealing axioms, turn on and further scrutiny and after subjecting them to moral reasoning again, 
turn out not to be so so obviously such uh, as what sabu appealing. very curious such as what so what kind of an axiom could have that kind of a character i i might have to become a little technical Go here ahead, yeah, it's okay fine. Hmm. uh uh l- let me take an example from social choice theory Please. okay uh the cornerstone on which all of welfare economics is built is what's called the pareto principle sure which says that given two states of the world x and y mm-hmm. if everybody is better off in x than in y mm-hmm. then society should prefer x to y now this correct. seems to be a completely unacceptable uh, uh correct uh, axiom to postulate now what amartya sen did was to combine this notion with a certain principle of liberty mm-hmm. which he called minimal liberty mm-hmm. which simply requires that in certain domains which fall within what john stuart mill called one's personal protected sphere mm-hmm. an individual should be decisive in choices between certain pairs of alternatives which typically differ only with respect to a feature which is of personal interest exclusively to that individual mm-hmm. now along with one or two other technical conditions he sought to characterize the set of rules mm-hmm. which would satisfy these principles mm-hmm. and he found like arrow did in the context of his impossibility theorem sure. that there were there was no such rule so the pareto principle which on the face of it looks like a principle of liberty actually it turns out can be demonstrated to be deeply illiberal mm. okay mm. and this is a non trivial result because the uh, pareto principle or the principle of efficiency is in some ways the uh, coping stone of uh, uh, all of the most fundamental logic mm. mm. but with or without the notion of liberty one is always acting in self interest or whatever right so mm. yeah that's a contestable uh, proposition because uh, one of the mm-hmm. arguments against the uh, the overblown emphasis on rationality as self-interest is that people are observed precisely often to act with sympathy uh, a notion right. which adam smith spoke of or uh, or to act with commitment which is the moral ability to hold on to a principle mm-hmm. even when it's not to one's advantage to do so uh, this is uh, rolls's formulation of the notion of commitment Mm. so people are observed as a matter of fact simply as a matter of uh, of a garden variety of fact to right. act with both sympathy <laughs> and with commitment but even it's even a great point to shift this a little bit um because it's still a principle based position right so and, and sympathy doesn't have to be uh principle based in that sense so uh, examples can be adduced about people uh expressing uh sympathetic relations or empathetic relations which i would align much more with a kind of hierarchy of uh of principles or in compassion mm-hmm. um so those aren't necessarily principle based axiomatic grounds for caring for another um how would compassion be different from um sympathy or empathy uh caring caring for another regardless of one's in, uh self-interest one's rational self-interest so there's not it's not it doesn't fit into my theoretical world view in some way it's not but, just but, being having empathy for the other but it's regardless of oneself re, so, uh suspending one's self-interest in that regard right right and so there's a lot of contestation about <laughs> about that as well is it possible to suspend one's self-interest uh in terms of other regarding us right or other caring for another 
Mm. There's a lot of work in ethics about that. Mm. Um, mm. And that also has to do with forms of identity theory and, and things like that. So the philosopher that I work the most with or work from is a philosopher named Emmanuel Levinas, mm-hmm. who prioritizes ethics mm-hmm. as opposed to epistemology mm-hmm. in terms of first philosophy. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, and basically the way that runs, I'm not going to get technical at all. I'll just remain uh, on a common sense level as, as much as possible. The way that that goes is... Um, philosophies such as rational choice theory and the modern forms of utility theory um, are motivated on uh, principles of stability that have to do with efficiency and economy, economic efficiency, that are prioritize um, adequation of others into this existing system. Right. So... The other has to fit into my system. It's incorporated into it. In some form. Has to incorporate into it. Right. So regardless if they want to or not, which is why I sure. introduced spontaneity and resistance before, right? Sure. So regardless if you agree to choose this or that, you have to be incorporated into the system. Mm. Right? Mm. So uh, that, go, that, that then raises the issue of... Um, how much do we regard the other as different from me from in terms of my theoretical, systematic... Jules, all of this, all of this sounds highly contextual. So, so this entire notion of universal ethics, uh, does, it, does it make sense at all? Or one is actually talking of all of this at the universal level, if you know what I mean? Well, if we, if, if we, come, if we think about this in terms of, say, religion... Um, from a Western perspective, the great Western monotheistic religions have a, a form of what's called the messianism is actually a political term. Mm-hmm. It's a political term. Mm-hmm. So the Messiah will come and save the day. Yeah. And everything will be perfect in the end. Yeah. <laughs> there, there will be perfect world order. Right? Yeah. So the, the way that works is we can have strong, a strong messianic system mm-hmm. or a strong ordering principle Mm-hmm. of how we ideally see the world perfectly becoming, right? Um, or we can have a weak one, mm-hmm. kind of a weak messianic approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the way I sort this out in my own writing is um, strong messianic systems elect strong political leaders sure. to sure. impress their dominant ideology on the people and get people to... Do yeah. what they want, no matter what. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the weak messianic mm. system still leaves ideals out there in front of us. Mm. Right? We mm. want a better society. Mm. We want to transform the world. We want actually each other to kind of engage in transforming the world. But how do you then express that? Where does the ethics begin? Right. Well, that's how does very ethicality begin? Right. So how do we do that? So that then becomes the question. That's right? very interesting. Yes, Subhu. On the question of a, of a universal ethic, yeah. um, the prospects of that are dim, and I, and I believe fortunately so, because uh, <laughs> yeah, a certain form of universalism and absolutism is also completely illiberal and also unreal, because uh, uh, there are bound to be cultural differences. You mean unachievable when, uh, when you say unreal? Uh, unlikely to elicit 
uniform agreement across the board. Okay, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's just as well, but but with a caveat, you know. Uh, I mean, as an epistemology, even if you allow for the impossibility of what is called warranted knowledge, right, that cannot be an excuse for complete relativism with respect to the status of what sure. we call the truth. Sure, sure, uh, sure. So uh, similarly, I mean, I think there is, uh, in my view at least, there mm-hmm. is a measure, sufficient measure of objectivity to the notion of morality, mm-hmm. which uh, makes it non-amenable to its construal in any fashion, whatever that you might choose to. Mm. You know? mm. So, mm. and more useful than the notion of universality is that of universalizability, which is... Uh, Something which Kant spoke of, which Rawls spoke of, you know, this notion that that one must speak in terms of general principles, even when to one's disadvantage, and the best operationalization of that is in terms of Kant's moral categorical model imperative, right. which itself goes back a it's very long way. It's this of, dictum. Yeah. yeah, it is this dictum. Yeah. Therefore, all things whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do you even so to them. Sure. Okay. Sure. And that, I think, in the end, is also the basis of compassion. That's No, I think it's a great point because, you know, when one, yeah, so universal doesn't necessarily mean applied to the entire universe. It's applied to your immediate universe and so on and so forth. Where are you on this, Janak? I think both are true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, relativism, uh, Definitely, you know, contextual factors, social constraints and all that are critically important. But at the same time, uh, humanity always has strived towards some higher level of humanism Mm -hmm. at universal level. Mm -hmm. So when we are talking about ethics, uh, we can always think of some ideals and on those ideals uh, could be found acceptable uh, across different human groups. Uh, maybe in practice, uh, they may not be at the similar level, but at ideal level, you can find that. You know, and uh, so in that sense, universalism uh, could be considered in terms of uh, morality, uh, you know, has a place. It has a place. It cannot be denied. But at the same time, I agree that uh, ethics is highly relativistic to sociocultural, political factors and facts. Mm. Yeah, Mm. uh, Mm. Yeah. But that does not mean that we deny that there is nothing like universal ethics. Uh, probably those universal ethics uh, are, uh, are not existing in the same level in terms of practice. I think the in question, the in a way, is that to what extent does context matter, uh, right? And 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 for a certain kind of universalism to hold, at least in some narrow sense and in some senses context should not matter, only then universalism would hold, right? You know, Uh, one thing in support of universalism is uh, the people of the world also agree on many issues. 
you know, they do agree. There is a lot of disagreement. There is a lot of differences in practice. But there is also uh, agreement. And, uh, but that may, may be the success of several rounds of acculturation, several rounds of, yeah. you know, different kinds of... Well, that could be also part of the human nature. Yeah. That could be also, you know, maybe that is, that may be linked somewhere. So you're a social psychologist, Janak. So yeah. are human beings at some level, in some form, in some corner, the same all over the world? Uh, I would... Because the, the question would no, depend let, on the okay, nature of human let, beings. Let right? me say, I will repeat a famous dictum. Mm. All men are alike. Mm -hmm. Some men are alike. No one is alike. <laughs> but this is, this is, this is, this is, what is this? Because this is saying all the three things. Yes, that is true. No one is like me. I'm different from everyone. No, but I like, I like that though. I said, so I want, I want to just, uh, I like Johnic's optimism. <laughs> <laughs> But I have to I have to be the counterpole to the the philosophy of utility here, and um, and 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 that kind of the utility as a philosophy as a universal philosophy I think is problematic and I think it's beyond risky I think it's dehumanizing that would, I'll be a strong I'll take a strong position there insofar be, yeah. as it promotes impersonality. And that's exactly, you know, the, the notion of every, no one's alike, right? I'm different than everybody else. And it's not just a simple contextualization. I mean, this is a strong, uh, I would take a strong stand on promoting uh, the acceptance of plurality, mm -hmm. political plurality and the plural expression of human nature and, and that, I'll go along that, route the the pluralism of human nature and that, that but, but, that's but, important but that doesn't does it mean anything goes does it mean i think the specter of relativism is a bogeyman <laughs> you know it's just some something that's thrown down to like scare people that everything's going to fall into anarchy or something like that chaos and anarchy but the fact of the matter is, is that we build societies and we get along with each other and this is janik's optimism right so, yes janik Genic. Uh there is also something like cultural universalism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. For example, mm -hmm. mothering mm -hmm. exists in all culture. Mm -hmm. You know, it could be a different matter. The style of mothering may differ. But you may be trying to pass off biology as culture. Well, uh, yes. At yeah. that point, biology and culture would be uh, very similar. And maybe that part of the culture is a product of biological similarity. Yeah. That all men are alike. We know. are the same species, so there would yes. be so yes. trying to pass off yes. a biological function. As, yes. Mm, yes. Mm, Due to mm. that, there are certain, uh, you know, universality and mm. that exists in our practice in terms of behavior. Of course, we go on modifying it, mm -hmm. suited to our own ecological context mm -hmm. for our best adaptation uh, in the ecological context. 
Yes, Subhu. Just just one point on this uh, notion of universality versus relativism. I think it is uh, difficult to make a law-like statement on this on this yes. subject because in practice, what tends to happen is that uh, most of us choose to be universalistic when we talk about, say, something like genocide. Okay. Many of us find it inconceivable to think of any state of affairs in which genocide could become an acceptable practice. Right. And yet when it comes to uh, moralities associated with practices of child rearing, for example, right. I think uh, most sensible people would be willing to allow for a wide spectrum of practices and uh, evaluations. Uh, a recent example being the way in which uh, some Indian couples have been uh, yeah. uh, pulled up in uh, yeah. Scandinavian no countries for uh, yeah. allegedly uh, bringing up their children the wrong way. So, so in practice, I think this is what tends to happen, that uh, we subscribe to both relativism and to uh, universality. And uh, But, you know, just, just as your Pareto optimal ideas kind of gave way or didn't really stand the scrutiny of a certain kind of analysis, is it likely that... Um, you know the 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 universal notion that we have about genocide being wrong, which I would imagine almost everybody shares. At least nobody will articulate it any other way. That 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 would give way as well. I know this is potentially a very fallacious and almost facetious, stupid well, kind of something that parallel. might give way. I mean, it is it is frequently invoked. I mean, there are people yeah. who say uh, there, there are contexts in which we would justify uh, genocide. Genocides in which we have participated, mm. which the rest of the world has no right to be judgmental about. Mm. So, I mean, it's, yeah, it's already happening. Yeah, yeah. How right is it to codify and impose ethics? Like, for example, in the economic context, if, 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 if one has, let's say, a reasonably widely, not say universally agreed, reasonably widely agreed um, ethical norms, is it is it ethical thereafter to codify it? Is it ethical thereafter to make it a law? Is it ethical thereafter to punish people? And of course, that's like saying, is it is it all right to have laws? Certainly, we have laws around us, and that's how it goes. Uh, but one is asking the meta-ethics question in the economic context. Well, in economics, as as in law, I suppose uh, that the tendency must be towards reasonable lawmaking. Mm. So, I mean, there are certain weak tests one can talk of. Uh, uh, Jules resisted the notion of utility maximization as an ethic which might have any appeal at all. It, he says it was, it's actually dehumanizing. And I entirely agree with that. Uh, but sometimes what is potent is to work as it were from within the system to undermine notions such as those of utility maximization in terms of contradictions in logic which they precipitate. Or you can change the definition of utility or you can broaden it. I, I, I'm, I'm certain. Uh, certainly, you can do that, but then you're not talking about the same thing any longer. Yeah, you know, sure. that's a form of cheating, <laughs> which <laughs> which uh, uh, might be quickly seen through. But to the whole notion of uh, 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 the supremacy of individual rationality, for example, has uh, given place to uh, to the notion that it's often uh, incompatible with. Uh, Collective rationality in terms of the prisoner's dilemma, for example. Sure. Okay, I mean, these are all examples of ways in which uh, received lawmaking or uh, theories of uh, the goodness of alternative states of the world, these are different ways in which these can be embarrassed 
you know right. uh, <laughs> through the through the use of counter examples which can which can result in moral embarrassment unless you insist on biting the bullet and sticking with what you've started out with or right by pointing out to possible lapses in logical reasoning uh, right. attendant on holding on to a position which is not really tenable right so, right yeah. right why don't we spend the last few minutes thinking about the future the future of ethics um, in these various contexts well let me be very brief I mean, yeah uh, sure uh, I can only hope that the future is better than the past has been. <laughs> and uh, I mean, in terms of prognostication, as I see it, I believe that there will be scope for greater permissiveness in certain areas, such as those relating to sexual mores, mm. gay rights, for example, gay marriages, uh, mm. uh, the institution of marriage itself. But can ethics, can the ethical impulse, which is always obviously well-meaning, can it overreach? meaning uh, can it can it can it can it go into funny and weird areas can it can it take an absurd turn somewhere along the way well i i don't see why not i mean it, it always has done down the history of mankind i mean uh, oh. uh, there have been instances of very bad ethics which have uh, marked the history of the evolution of man so uh, oh. that oh. that will probably continue to happen but in terms of likely scenarios i also see the possibility of a return to certain what you might call prudential virtues mm-hmm. what is that to lifestyle issues such as drinking smoking vegetarianism and so on uh, so so both greater permissiveness in certain areas greater liberalism more egalitarianism these are the positive aspects which uh, one hopes uh, the world will witness in the time to come mm-hmm. and uh, also more sensible ways of living which mm. uh, w- which might mean a return to certain forms of conservatism mm. Mm. what's the future jules what's the future of ethics oh um well i think from my position ethics is always uh a way that we relate with e- with others in ways that leaves their otherness intact so mm. if, if i can relate with you and leave your otherness intact Mm. then i know i'm engaging in ethics somehow so in so far as ethics continues to be a way that humans characterize how we relate to each other that's how i would think about it and that um and the kinds of ethics i think that will continue to be fruitful and will nourish us um the ones i think we should promote speaking of shoulds normative shoulds arts arts um have to do with us teaching each other that um we should regard others not as someone who needs who needs to be illumin illuminated or illumined by my categories or my interpretation right but rather as someone who has their own light and can speak for herself right and um and and always to remember that ethics comes before systematization before political systematizing that's ethics a great is point prior that's a great point political systematization and if we keep that in mind then we can always for me but is that a lament is is the systematization a lament i mean does something start going wrong the moment it's systematized politically well not necessarily if it's done in justice but that has to keep then alive the ethical moment which is always the questioning mm. ethical ethics 
and ethicality has to do with question always questioning my own spontaneity, my own freedom, my own autonomy. Mm. So once I try impressing that on you, mm. I'm impressing my categories on you. Mm. But if I if I begin by questioning my own spontaneity, if I if I keep that element alive, then I can create in conversation with you, with each other, with others, just systems. Mm. But I think that only comes about if we keep alive this stance of quest, this uh, moment of questioning one's starting point. And obviously, in saying that, you kind of imagine or believe that it's possible. I think it happens. I think we're. It's possible at large scales, not at. It's, it's possible at the scale of mankind. Oh, I'm not. Sh- I'm not sure about the large scale. I think that's where we get in trouble. We we begin thinking in terms of these large scale projects. And we lose track of the small scale neighborhoods. Not, not as an implementation project, but even even for lots of one-on-one small systems regarding the other at more immediate levels. So, the kind of um, trench work that has to be done is in teaching us how to engage in. Um, conversations on a very basic level. Mm. And I think that's where ethics begins, you know, and how we teach each other to converse with each other. Yeah. You know, if we're talking, if our session's on the beginning of ethics. Yeah. <laughs> you know, And also we, listening, not just talking. That's uh, kind of your well, point. that's just it. That's kind of your point, yeah. I have to listen. Yeah. To listen to the sigh and the moan. Yeah. To the desire. To everything. To the needs of the other. What's the future, Janak? We'll end with you. Well, uh, not, takes, not not the future you wish for, the future that you highly suspect is ahead. Uh, you know, awareness at individual and societal level that uh, when we decide for a particular action, we think consequence of the action in terms of self-interest. We do not think in terms of its other consequences. And that's a natural human bias that, uh, you know, people keep on thinking that they are doing right thing and they fail to see the adverse consequences of the action. So some sensitivity training at a socialization level or social discourse level that uh, what is its negative consequence for some other people as, uh, you know, we were... But Janak, you're still in the wishful territory, aren't you? So you're saying that this is how I wish the future were or would be. Yes. The question is, how will the future be? Uh, the future... I'm not suggesting you know it. Yeah. The, He's uh, saying before we blow ourselves up. <laughs> <laughs> The future always learns and future always decides its new course of action. So once we have a lot of negative consequences due to some action taken by at political level and other level, you know, self-corrective system do come in because that's the social evolutionary process. Right. And one is, you know... Typically, these days, uh, ecological ethics, environmental ethics, the way we have 
uh, you know, uh, not just fellow human beings, but the, yeah, like, the entire but, yeah. nature. So that that is there is a greater realization taking place, and that realization I'm sure is going to have uh, impact. But even that is very long-winded self-centeredness, isn't it? Uh, eventually, we're all thinking for, well, maybe our kids, but. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. At the turn yeah. of the 17th to the 18th century, Kant, Immanuel Kant, we talked about universalizability, came, uh, wrote this very short essay mm-hmm. for a newspaper contest called What is Enlightenment? Mm-hmm. And the question was, along your lines, mm. uh, do you see that we're in an age of enlightenment, as Janik is talking about, or that we still stand in need of becoming enlightened? Right. You know, do we is is the future still calling for us to become enlightened? Right. Or are we in an age of enlightenment? Uh, and that's the question Kant raised. What's, what's uh, your raised answer to today? What? What's your answer today? What's the answer to today? I'm going to I'm going to share Johnick's optimism. <laughs> <laughs> Not because <laughs> you don't we're have actually, an option. We're <laughs> actually engaging with each other in in, yeah. in good kinds of conversations, and that will prove prove to be. Uh, fruitful for the Ooh. future. So, Boo? Oh, well, I certainly hope so. Yeah. <laughs> that, <laughs> hey, that, look at us here. That <laughs> optimism is a necessity. Yes, yeah. it's, it's compulsory optimism. <laughs> yes. Terrific. Thank you. That's a good yeah. note to end this on. And thanks to all of you for making it. We look, look forward to having you soon. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, a lot. Yeah. Uh, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot.